0: Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. For your listening edification, today is Thursday, November the 17th, 2022, and this show will be rebroadcast Monday, November the 21st, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org all comments are welcomed and can be sent to pedro at p gatos zero zero at gmail.com that's p gatos zero zero at gmail.com many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. this is our 133rd post-covid show a new world but the same place so stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue thank you for joining us And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. And thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Again, thanks for joining us. We have a sensational show tonight, as quite frankly we have every Monday night. If your interest is to get as close to the truth as any news and analysis show will allow you, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Bringing Light Into Darkness, where we invite you to join in our weekly pursuit for social justice. A pursuit where we seek to separate fact from fiction and where we acknowledge uncertainty, where we seek to deconstruct deceit by identifying where unproven allegations are presented as fact through repetition and the absence of evidence and where uncertainties are approached from a humble, critical thinking perspective because our interest is in deconstructing deceit and oppression, not enabling it. Tonight, we continue our pursuit to get as close to the truth as possible around the Ukraine-Russia-NATO-US conflict Many of our findings are contrary to the mainstream media's reporting on these issues, and we find that increasingly alarming. Tonight, Scott Ritter, former weapons inspector, returns to bringing light into darkness and continues to illuminate a history and contemporary analysis that's missing in our discourse. Please feel free to email pgatos00 at gmail.com, pgatos00 at at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or concerns. Enjoy. Good evening, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP here in Austin, Texas. This is Bringing Light into Darkness Monday News and Analysis. This is Thursday, November the 17th, 2022. This show will be broadcast live on Monday, November the 21st, 2022 at 6 p.m., Central Standard Time. I wanted to go ahead and introduce our special guest. That would be Scott Ritter. Scott, welcome back to Bringing Light into the Darkness. Well, thank you very much for having me. Those of you that are not familiar with Scott Ritter, he was a weapons inspector. He's a writer. He's a lecturer. He worked For the UN as a weapons inspector in Iraq from 1991 to 1998, where he famously warned the American public and anyone that would listen that Saddam Hussein did not have weapons of mass destruction. Scott Ritter proved to be eminently accurate with all of those in subsequent analysis on many other foreign policy issues. Scott was a news analyst for CNN and NBC television networks. He was born into a military family. He worked in military intelligence, actually, in the USSR. And during the 1991 Gulf War, he served as Marine Central Command headquarters in Saudi Arabia under General Norman Schwarzkopf. And at the end of that conflict is when Scott left the military service and joined the United Nations Special Commission on Weapons Inspections in Iraq. He participated in 52 inspection missions, uh, heading 14 of those. After some frustrations with the U.S. State Department and the United Nations, Scott publicly resigned his position. I had an introductory framing type of thing I wanted to go through real quick on the Ukraine here, and then invite you to comment as you feel appropriate. What I wanted to share just a couple of things. In 2014, there was a U.S.-supported coup that removed the 2010 elected president Yanukovych, that was democratically elected in Ukraine, and what followed was a government in which a half dozen or more high-cabinet positions were assigned to neo-Nazi-affiliated persons. And this has been detailed on previous Bringing Light into Darkness shows, the proof and the veracity of that claim. So I'm not going to get into the absolute details here, but the proof of that veracity, there was this infestation in this post-coup government of these neo-Nazis. It included the head of the education ministry, the head of the ecology ministry, the head of the agriculture ministry. More important, it included Svoboda and and right sector neo-Nazi leaders, two main neo-Nazi entities in Ukraine, Svoboda and and right sector that were responsible for the control over the armed forces, police, justice, and national security. In addition to the other aforementioned cabinet positions held by neo-Nazis post coup. This is particularly relevant. Andrew Perubi, he was the co-founder of the Neo-Nazi Social National Party of Ukraine, which of course was then renamed Svoboda. He was appointed the Secretary of the National Security and National Defense Committee, a key position which oversaw the Ministry of Defense, the Armed Forces, law enforcement, etc. Uh, in turn, Dmitro Yarish is the leader of the right sector delegation in the parliament. He was opponent uh, to Peruby's Deputy Secretary of the National Security and Defense Committee we just mentioned, again, which oversaw the Ministry of Defense, the Armed Forces, Law Enforcement, National Security, and Intelligence. At the same time, the neo-Nazi party interests also controlled the judicial process with the appointment of Ali Magnitsky of the Svoboda Party to the position of Prosecutor General of Ukraine, another neo-Nazi. I share this to introduce the show because following the coup, Came a major pushback led by Ukrainians in the East, in the Donbass area, who were predominantly Russian speaking. Polling that I've cited before, I want to repeat here of July 10th, 2010, by Robert Schumann Foundation, the Research and Studies Center of, of Europe, revealed that number one, Yanukovych easily won in the east and the south of Ukraine. His popularity was immense in the regions of Donetsk with 90.4% of the vote. In the Lugansk, with 88.8% of the vote. And in the autonomous region of Crimea, 78.3% of the vote. Again, referring to the 2010 election. So the narrative we were fed ad nauseum was Russia was the aggressor. But these numbers suggest the main reason these regions rebelled was the president that they had elected by margins of 80% was forcibly removed from office. So what unfolded was following the coup, Large, peaceful protests in the South and the East that the U.S.-supported coup government ruthlessly suppressed, led by these neo-Nazi elements, as we indicated. Several dozen peaceful protesters were infamously massacred. They were protesting. They took refuge in the trade unions building in Odessa on or about May 2nd. 2014. And while police looked on, neo-Nazis lit up the building. Several dozen burned to death. Some of them were beaten to death as they tried to escape the fire. And this really symbolized the repression that was unleashed that occurred in the East and the South. Meanwhile, the the Russian language is outlawed as Russian speakers became second-class citizens, referred to less-than-human characterizations by a U.S.-backed government. As we fast-forward to the special operation of Russia in February of 2022. By that time, subsequent to the period of the post-coup 2014, to the invasion by Russia, some 14,000 civilian deaths occurred in the east of, again, overwhelmingly, predominantly Russian speakers. Under international law, a Russian invasion of Ukraine is an aggression. But Putin did not invade Ukraine before there were repeated requests by the Donbass in 2014 to come. And Russia denied those requests based, I think, on political considerations, and they sought the Minsk Agreement route, which was sabotaged by Ukraine, failure to abide by that. And importantly, the United States and the West failure to compel Ukraine to abide by the Minsk Agreement, it had signed to abide by. But I guess what I'm really trying to get at is that eight years later, those two Donbass Republics were recognized by Russia. And then subsequent to that, when they requested assistance yet again, Russia did respond. But when it comes to international law, Scott, it just seems like Putin is generally the one in the world who is generally trying to abide by it. Certainly Washington does not. And by abiding to international law, while Washington does not, it seems like it gives every advantage to the West to frame Russia as this monster. Can you speak to that? How international law, it seems like Putin has for a long time been trying to get Russia accepted into the West and now realizes that that's no longer a possibility and they have their own national security interests that they are asserting. And in that framework, can you speak a little bit to who are the great violators or is everybody violating international law?
1: Well, let's just be clear that when it comes to Russia's military operation in Ukraine, Russia is in 100% total conformity with international law. 100% total conformity with international law. Now, let me people take umbrage at that because, of course, we've been told that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is an unprovoked act of aggression. Let me school people a little bit on, uh, on international law. The Ukrainian conflict prior to February of 2022 was an internal conflict, one that Russia recognizes as an internal conflict. We know because when 2014, when Lugansk and Donetsk, the two Donbas provinces, held their own internal referendum and declared independence and sought to be recognized by Russia and incorporated into Russia, they were told by the Russians no, that they are part of Ukraine and that Russia respects the territorial integrity of Ukraine but Russia will work with the international community through the Minsk accords to come up with a solution that has certain autonomy granted to these regions so that their language culture religion can be embraced by a uh, ethnic russian population uh, without fear of uh, prosecution or persecution uh, from ukrainian nationalists this is something that ukraine agreed to when the document was signed but ukraine failed to implement And so for a period of eight years, Russia tried to work with uh, Western partners and primarily the United States, France, and Germany to get Ukraine to implement this and bring it into this conflict. Now, that did not happen. What did happen was that NATO, with an American lead, set up permanent training facilities on Ukrainian soil, whose sole purpose was to train Ukrainian forces to NATO standards before sending them to eastern Ukraine to fight the Russian separatists. Now, the I'll say this, the separatists say, and they take umbrage at the notion of, that they're separatists. They claim that the Ukrainian government is a government of insurrectionists. The separatists say that they supported the only legal government of Ukraine, and that is, of course, the government of Viktor Yanukovych, and that they are defending Ukraine from this outside-backed coup. And factually and legally speaking, they're 100% correct, but the world will never recognize that. But Russia has said that regardless of how they view themselves, they are Ukrainian and the solution must come from within Ukraine. But when it became obvious that the Ukrainian government was using the Minsk Accords not as a vehicle for peace, but as a shield behind which they hid while they built up a military force capable of retaking the Donbass, Russia felt that it had no choice but to act, especially after confronting both the United States. And people need to recall, go back, June 2021 meeting between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin in Geneva, where Putin confronted Biden about Minsk and said, what will you do about this? Will you pressure the Ukrainians to agree? And and, and Biden promised, he said, that Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, will handle this. Blinken did not. Uh, Russia confronted both France and Germany in the fall of 2021 during a Minsk side meeting and said, will you here and now tell uh, Ukraine to comply, to implement the the Minsk Accords? And both the French and the Germans said they cannot and they will not. At that point in time, it was clear to Russia that the Minsk process was dead. Moreover, it was being used to allow Ukraine to build up this NATO-trained army, which was amassing in Eastern Ukraine during the fall, winter months of uh, 2021, 2022. Scott, didn't Petroshenko, the interim president there, didn't he later
0: confirm all that, what you just said, namely that it was just a smokescreen in order to buy time to build up those forces? And he basically just admitted that in the
1: dialogue that's in the public domain. Is that correct? Correct. Nothing I'm saying is made up. Everything I'm saying is confirmed fact. Take it to the bank. Right. Um, so when I say what I said, it's because Poroshenko confessed to this in a public forum, admitting that Minsk was a sham, that's his words, a shield behind which he was going to build a NATO-trained army capable of retaking not only the Donbas but Crimea. His words, not mine. But the Russians knew this. So the Russians now were confronted with the reality that, left unchecked, there was going to be a naked aggression by the Ukrainian military, NATO-trained Ukrainian military, against the ethnic Russian population of Donbas what to do. Now, if Russia had intervened militarily at this point, Russia would have been violation of international law. Russia has no legal right to militarily impose itself on an internal Ukrainian issue uh, without the permission of the international community, namely a Chapter 7 resolution of the United Nations Charter that would find that Ukraine posed a threat to international peace and security, which authorized a military force to be used to deal with that threat. This is a Chapter 7 resolution akin to what was passed in 1990 by the United Nations, authorizing the United States and the international community to use military force to evict Iraq from Kuwait. No such resolution existed. None was ever going to exist. So what happened was Russia turned to the two areas, Lugansk and Donetsk, and told them, Now's the time to hold that referendum again. And they did. Now's the time to declare yourself independent. And they did. And then Russia recognized their independence. And then Russia formed what's known as a collective security agreement between the three independent entities, Russia, Lugansk, and Donetsk. Now we have a different situation. Now Russia is part of a collective security agreement and intervene to protect those members of the collective security agreement. People are going to go, go, Scott, this is all legal, humble jumbo, man. You know what's going on. Yeah, it's called international law. And don't debate me on the issue. Debate NATO the United States, because the exact same thing that I just described was used by the United States and NATO to justify, under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, their military intervention on behalf of Kosovo against Serbia in 1999. I think also what's worth
0: mentioning or, or re-mentioning is the fact that you had these referendums, and according to Schumann's polling, you had, this is not just the will of the people voting, but it's an overwhelming will of 80% or more that had supported the president that got couped out. So it really does seem like there's a very strong argument that this is the will of the vast majority of the people and not,
1: you know, political interests per se. No, it is definitely the will of the people. And the United Nations Charter speaks of self-determination. And here we have the ethnic Russian majority population of the Donbass and Donetsk, refusing to be subjected to the murderous policies of a neo-Nazi-affiliated nationalist Ukrainian government, making there will be known through a referendum that says we don't want to be part of that, we want to be independent. And then they chose to side with Russia to create a collective security agreement to protect themselves from imminent attack. And this was right. decided. Article 51 uh, is a self-defense thing. It says a nation has a right to defend itself when attacked. People will say, well, Scott, <laughs> Russia wasn't attacked. Nope. Uh, study international law, since so that's what we're talking about. The Carolina Affair, I believe, in 1836, the United States ship uh, transporting Canadian rebels to Canadian shores was attacked by a British warship. People said that was an unprovoked attack, act of aggression by the British against the United States. But the British were able to argue that it was required for them to do preemptive self-defense prevent what was an imminent threat from manifesting itself on its soil. And the courts agreed that is the case. The Carolina affair, Carolina affair, has dominated the legal thinking on this subject throughout the ages and is still cited today when people talk about preemptive self-defense. It is a legitimate doctrine but has been used several times, and Russia employed it. Preemptive self-defense requires there to be an imminent threat to the collective security arrangement. The imminent threat was in the form of sixty to 100,000 Ukrainian troops trained by NATO that were shipped to the east and were prepared within a matter of weeks to launch an attack against the Donbass. Russia said that we must preempt this attack. That was the purpose of launching this special military operation. People will say, wasn't it more expansive than simply the Donbass? Once you get into war, to give you an example, Chapter 7 Charter authorized United States to use whatever means necessary to evict Iraq from Kuwait. Yet, when we undertook our military operations in 1991, we carried out a strategic air campaign that targeted the entirety of Iraq. We carried out special operations in Western Iraq to prevent scud missiles from being launched against Israel. We struck Iraq from the north to the south to the east to the west because it is an all inclusive military effort designed to achieve the end result, which is the eviction of Iraqi troops from Kuwait. It was total conformity with international law. Everything about Russia's special military operation. Conforms with international law. Russia is not the violator. This was not an unprovoked act of aggression. This is Russia carrying out international law, unlike NATO and the United States, who violate international law on a daily basis in the manner in which they are supporting Ukraine and the defense of Ukraine against the Russian special military operation. Namely, we provide weapons knowing that the Ukrainians will use them against civilian targets. We provided the HIMARS. We provided the M777, France has provided the Caesar. Germany has provided its own howitzers. These are all long-range systems that are being used on a daily basis by Ukraine to target civilian targets, exclusively civilian targets. We also know that the Ukrainian military, which we are arming and equipping, habitually uses human shields as part of its defensive arrangements that it purposely digs into urban areas, compels civilian populations to stay there, so that if Russia does attack, there will be civilian casualties and they'll use that for propaganda purposes. The bottom line is, Russia has bent over backwards. Yes, people might be able to say, oh, they did this, they did that, they did this. You know, First of all, I'd have to investigate each and every one of them, but I'm not gonna pretend that Russia is perfect, nobody's perfect, but I'm saying that from intent to execution, Russia has bent over backwards to be in total conformity with international law up until and including the most recent action, in Kherson, where they evacuated the civilian population before subjecting the area to a military campaign. Why? Because it's incumbent upon a military commander to remove civilians from the battlefield before engaging in uh, hostile actions. The Russians have been doing this consistently. The Ukrainians
0: have not. Well, let me just remind folks, we're visiting with Scott Ritter, former weapons inspector, someone that's been intimately following the unfolding events in the Ukraine since before 2014 let me also just say it seems that it's not just that russia as you've indicated is following international law while the united states is not in the west and ukraine is not it seems like all the projections that ukraine does against russia regarding their constant claims that russia is disregarding civilian safety and is indiscriminately killing civilians when they deny them russia that is it turns out over months following That their claims are verified, or there's lack of evidence of the claims against them. And just a couple of examples of that include we can go back to the Russian bounty story, which has now been dismissed, but also the Russian missile strike at that railway station that you spoke to us about a couple of months ago at Krematorsk that was blamed on Russia. They denied it. And immediately everyone called them liars and it proved that they were, in fact, not lying. The Washington Post and Amnesty International. Indicated it was the Ukrainian government and not the Russian government that were, quote unquote, using a civilian shield. So this has been also dismissed. You also have very importantly informed us, and I want to go back to this. You know, your claims, you can claim their facts, but the way you can determine their facts is the outcome of this conflict. And back in August, when we had you on, Scott, August 15th, you cited that there had been some 250,000. Ukrainian soldiers that had either been killed or wounded and perhaps about 80 thousand you were suggesting were dead Ukrainian soldiers and that normally in historically in a military conflict that you have a one-to-one ratio for every combatant that's killed you have one de- dead civilian so there should have been eighty thousand dead civilians based on that criteria but at the time you were suggesting that your belief was the number was between eight and ten thousand so, There is very strong data that suggests, as you said, that Russia is executing this war with civilian, with one hand tied behind their back almost in a certain sense. And the movement of that and the slow movement of this Russian special operation offensive process continues to, I think, prioritize the protection of civilians and the protection of Russian troops. And like you said, in Kherson, probably more than anything else, apparently there were going to be great losses if they tried to protect that area. And apparently strategically, it was not all that significant to temporarily withdraw from that area until their 300,000 forces are fully deployed. But anyhow, when you look at how this war is going on right now, Scott, it seems like Russia is in the last vestiges of getting ready to do a counteroffensive of some sort with the hundreds of thousands of of reservists that that have been called up and such. And that the losses that Ukraine army has been taking are unsustainable. In other words, it appears to me that the U.S. and the West, we just continue to feed the Ukraine army with weaponry without any regard for their army or their majority population's welfare. But Scott, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby Austin. We'll be back right after a few messages, so don't touch that dial. Back in a flash.